Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King, Lord, we thank you that you have brought us together once again so that we can study your words, so that we can be equipped for righteous living, so that we can be empowered to live a life that is pleasing to you, so that we can uh, continue to be witnesses for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord Yeshua, for giving us this awesome task, for assigning this uh, responsibility to us, for we know that uh, there indeed is a great reward. And that reward, Lord, is not just that you, you're bringing us into your kingdom, Lord, but that in this partnering with us on this, this, this assignment of salvation, you're causing us to be able to um, be able to see other souls that are brought into the kingdom. What an awesome responsibility to 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 uh, partner with God to say that I'm I'm a, a, a contractor with God working to help uh, to bring uh, people into uh, the kingdom of God. Um, Lord, you could have you didn't have to choose us. You you could have raised up the stones and 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 caused the sons to be made from the stones, uh, as you 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 as we read in those gospels. You can make uh, sons of Abraham out of the stones, but you instead you chose us and you've equipped us and you've empowered us and you've um, given us uh, uh, a desire and the tools. And this scripture that we're studying is part of our toolkit in uh, sharing the good news with those around us. So we ask that you'll continue to um, give us a holy boldness as we share the good news, as we continue to teach, as we continue to live lives that are that are pleasing to you, uh, continuing to turn away from sin and to, to resist uh, the, uh, the, the old nature, uh, the, the, the old impulses that uh, we were raised with as we continue to walk this road of righteousness. Uh, be with us tonight as we turn once again to the book of Galatians. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory, but Shem Yeshua, Amen. Okay, well, welcome everyone for joining me once again to another study in the book of Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva in Thornton, Colorado. Why don't you come out and visit us sometime if you're ever in the Denver, Colorado area. We'd love to have you join us services on a Saturday Saturday, after, Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon for our services. Uh, just some brief logistics about the study real quick, and then we'll jump into the liturgy and then jump right into the study tonight. Uh, let's date stamp it real quick before I forget. Today is November the what is it? November the eleventh, two thousand seventeen. So it's eleven eleven for most of you, and this is week number eighty, which means 
from our semester perspective schedule, this is our 10th week of meeting, so we'll take a break for the next two weeks. 10 weeks on, two weeks off, 10 weeks on, two weeks off. That's how we usually go. So, uh, no meeting next week and the week after, but we'll meet, we'll meet, we'll pick up again in two weeks and start again with week 81. Okay. Uh, for those of you who are following along with my Galatians study uh, live each week, we meet from 7 p.m. to about 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. I hope you remember to set your clocks. Uh, what was it? Spring forward, fall back. I hope you remember to set your clocks back for those of you who are with me in the live study. Otherwise, <laughs> you're missing the study. Uh, uh, you, you, you didn't set your clocks back and Hey, sorry. Um, but for those of you who are listening to this study after the fact, meaning you're listening to the MP3 audio recording, or you've picked up my commentary on iTunes, well, then it didn't matter, right? Uh, you're listening to the audio commentary. But if you'd like to join us live each week, just remember, each Saturday night around 7 p.m. Central Time, so adjust your clock according to Central Time, and you'll be able to meet with us on Skype. Head on out to my uh, website at www.tatesaytorah.com if you are interested in following along with the study and someone maybe someone shot you a link and you're listening to this, this is your first time and um, uh, maybe you've not been able to follow the study, this is your first time listening. Uh, go over to tatesaytorah.com and right on the homepage you can find the link for the Galatians notes as well as all of the information needed to uh, download the written commentary and pick up any audio commentaries that you might have missed if this is your first time. Like I said, we're on week 80, and we've been going for a little over two years on this study now. Okay? So, love to have you join us live. We do a little after-chat uh, session at, uh, you know, for about 15, 20, 30 minutes after each uh, live session of an hour, and that way we can just kind of go over questions or comments or just prayers or things like that. All right, without further ado, let's uh, jump into the liturgy for tonight. I'm going to pull the uh, passage out of Ezekiel that we've used in previous teachings, because tonight we're going to be talking about justification. And so we're going to read from Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'm just going to use verses 22 through, I think it's 28, yeah, just those few verses. If you're with me in the live class, you should be able to see my screen, and therefore you should be able to see uh, the passages that I've got pulled up. I've got the uh, JPS 1917 version pulled up, and Jewish Publication Society, and then right next to that, you should be able to see the Hebrew right to the very uh, left of that. Um, and today's theme, or tonight's theme, is justification. We're going to be turning to Galatians 3, verse 4, and you're going to find that in this verse, one of the central themes is Paul talking to the Galatian Gentiles about how is it that God reckons a person as righteous or justified, or uh, how does justification take place? Is it uh, something that we can do, or is it something that God himself uh, is in control of? And with that theme in mind that we're borrowing from the Galatians 3 passage, look at this passage here in Ezekiel chapter 36. I want you to carefully notice as we're reading through the liturgy in English, who is the one that's doing the saving or the justifying or the changing of, of Israel? It's two people going on here, right? Uh, two people in view. So let's read the liturgy and see what we can make of it. Starting in verse 22, uh, in the English we read, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not, 
I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations whither ye came. <clears throat> Verse 23, sorry about that. And I will sanctify my great name, which hath been profaned among the nations, which ye have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall sanctify when I shall be sanctified in your eyes, I'm sorry, sanctified in you before their eyes. Verse 24, For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Verse 25, And I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep mine ordinances and do them. And then the final verse, 28, And you shall, ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. All right, so in the English, we've got God doing a lot of things to Israel. Notice that Israel, for the most part, is passive in this whole passage. They're just the recipients of the grace and the mercy that God is pouring out to Israel in the promises that are that are being spelled out in these passages. And notice all the things that God does uh, in verse 22. He, he does this for his sake, verse 23. He sanctifies his great name, um, He's sanctified before their eyes, verse 24. He takes them from among the nations. He gathers them out of the countries. He brings them into their own land, verse 25. He sprinkles clean water so that they can be clean, um, verse 26. He gives them a new heart and a new spirit he puts within them. He takes out the stony heart and he gives them a heart of flesh, verse 27. I will, he puts his spirit within them. He causes them to walk in his statutes and to keep his ordinances and do them. And then they dwell in the land that God gave to their forefathers and they become his people. And God is their God. So if we were to ask the question of justification, who's doing the justifying? How is Israel becoming justified in these verses? I think it's quite easy to understand that Israel isn't doing it. They're not doing it by their own power, by their own might, by their own Torah observance, or by their own ethnicity, not by their volition. Rather, I like to say that simply they are surrendering to the mighty power of God himself. God's doing all of the, 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 the justifying, if I can wrap it all up into one word there, that we're going to borrow from uh, Galatians chapter 5 tonight. All right, let's go back and read the Hebrew real quick, and then we'll jump into some uh, Greek from the New Testament, Apostolic Scripture. Starting again in verse 22, we read, L'chein emor levet Yisrael ko amar Adonai lunai lo lama'anchem ani osei beit Yisrael ki im l'shem kadshi asher chalaltem bagoim asher batem sham. Verse 23, V'kidadshti et shmi Hagadol Hamcholal Bagoim Asher Hilaltem Batokam I'm sorry but yes Batokam Vayadu Hagoim Ki Ani Adonai Nuum Adonai Adonai Bahikadshi Bachem Lae Nehem Verse twenty four Vala Kahti et Hem Min Hagoim Vakad 
וכיבדתי אתכם מכל הארצות והבאתי אתכם אל אדמתכם. Verse 25. Notice, uh, I, I got to pause real quick. In verse 27, we, we've often noticed that in the Hebrew, sometimes you'll have two very important verbs that are put next to each other, right back to back. Very often in the Hebrew, we'll find this. And it's the two verbs of shamar and asa in the root forms, if you're looking them up in your strongs, the root, the, the, the primitive root will show up as shamar and asa. And shamar is often um, translated as guard or safeguard. Sometimes it shows up as keep, sometimes it shows up as do, but the, the most common root form uh, refers to safeguarding or, or, or guarding or something like that. And then the other word, asa, is the very kind of the generic Hebrew word for do. So we have these two words that show up quite often when God is referring to the Torah and to his commandments and his, and his precepts and his statutes and his judgments. He talks about Israel safeguarding and doing or uh, being careful to observe and to do or something like that. Careful to observe, to obey, safeguard, keep to do. And in verse 27, we have the same concept going on. The final, uh, the few, the last uh, clause of the verse says, and ye shall keep mine ordinances and do them. And in the English, we see the verb keep and the verb do, which correspond in Hebrew to um, right here, tishmuru va'asitem. So we got this root word shamar right there and the root word asa right there. And I've pointed this out when we were reading through the Deuteronomy liturgy last week and the week before. That again, quite often God doubles these uh, verbs up together. Uh, shamor with shamar. I'm sorry. Yes, shamar with um, with asa. It's because I think there's this internal concept that takes place first, and that's where we obs- we, we we internalize God's words, and then after we internalize them, um, then we actually walk them out. We externalize them. We 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 take them to heart first. That's the shamar part. And then we do them. We actually walk in them because they have become a part of our thinking process and a part of our our volition, of our will, of our of our mind, of our heart. In other words, they've been put on the inside. Therefore, the natural outworking is is the fruit that we see on the outside, the doing of them. Okay. And then the final pasuk um, in Hebrew, "Vishavtem ba'aretz asherer natati la'avotehem vehitem." Li laam ani adon, I'm sorry, anohi et, I'm sorry, anohi ehe lechem le Elohim, and I will be, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Alright, that'll be the Hebrew for tonight. Let's jump over to the, uh, apostolic scriptures, to our Greek passage, our English passage out of the book of Galatians. We're reading from the ESV version, 
and it's Greek New Testament, uh, the SBL GNT version. We'll read both of those together. Again, we're on the same theme, just for this one verse, basically, of justification. Paul is now setting this challenge before the Gentile uh, readers once again. How is it that you wish to be justified? Of course, as we're going to find out, this word justification has some some different, some some varying nuances to it. But generally speaking, we could uh, we could categorize justification as basically salvation, if you want to use 21st century terminology. All right, let's go back and read the English, uh, and then we'll entertain some Greek. ESV. This is our passage where that we're going to be stuck in for. Uh, probably a few weeks because of uh, the verses that we're mining from it. Stuck in is a kind of a, a, a poetic word there. Uh, ESV Galatians 5, 1 through 6. For freedom Christ has set us free. Verse 1. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Verse 5, for through the Spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. All right. Let's look at the Greek as well. For those of you who are in my live class, hopefully you can see the screen there. And hopefully nothing's being blocked. And maybe Skype might be trying to block something, but I apologize. Maybe I can pop Skype up here to the top and get it out of the way. Did that work? Ah, nothing changed. All right. Okay. Uh, so hopefully you can see my screen. We're going to start right here in the Greek. All right. 5 verse 1. Uh, out of the SBLGNT version reads, Te Eleutheria Hemas Christos, Eleutherosin, Stekate un kai me pollen, Zugo duleas in a kesta. Verse 2, Ide, Ego, Palas, Lego, Human Hati in Peritem Nesta, Christos, Humas, Uden, O, Felese. Verse 3, Marturo, my de pollen, Panti Anthropo, Peritem Nameno, Hati, O, Felates, Estin Hollanton, Naman Poesai. Verse 4, Kater Gethete, Apocristu, Hoitinus, and Namu, Namo, Decauste, Decauste, Tes, Charistas, Exapesate. And that's the verse we're going to look at tonight, verse 4 there. Verse 5, Hemes, Gater, Pnumati, Epistios, Elpida, Decausunes, Apec, Decametha. And the final verse, verse 6, In Gater, Christo, Yesu, Ute, Pertume, Tiescue, Ute, Acrobustia, Allah pistis diagapes in ergumene. All right, let's look real quick, just very briefly at the Greek, because we're going to look at this tonight. If you look at the English, you you are severed from Christ, you would be justified by the law. Notice in the English, we have justified by the law. And then in 5, it says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In the ESV, we got two different words. We've got justified and righteousness. But in the Greek, they're actually rooted in the same Greek word, which the root verb would be dikaiao. And we can see this if we actually look at the Greek, uh, starting in verse 4, four where it says, katergeta de apokristo hoitines en namo dikaiuste. En is the Greek word 
in, like uh, or by, I-N. Uh, namo is our familiar Greek word, root word, uh, namos. So, in, law. And then this final word here, this verb, dikaiuste, uh, is the, tra- the, the, the English equivalent is justified. And the root word for dikaiuste, if I were to look it up in our Strong's, is actually this Greek verb, dikaiao. And if you notice, just listen to the first five letters, D-I-K-A-I, right, in the Greek. Dikai, you can hear the sound. If you jump down to verse 5, Well, then we got this word right here, dikaiusunes. Sound familiar? Dikaiuste, dikaiusunes. You can even see the first five letters are the same, dikai. Dikai. That's because if you go back and look up this word, dikaiusunes, in verse 5, which is translated in the English as righteousness. Uh, if you look this up in the Greek, you'll find it's the same root word uh, as the one that we find in verse 4. So we could really, we could say that Paul's saying in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. And then following up with verse 5, we have Paul saying, for through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of, and if we were to turn it into a verb, we would say, for the hope of being justified. See how that works? We could translate it that way. Or you who are severed, verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be made righteous, if we could turn the verb into a noun, you who would be made righteous by the law, you have fallen away from grace, and then follow that up with verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. So either way, if you want to, Use similar cognates in English righteousness and be made righteous or justified and become just be made justified or something like that. It's the same root Greek word for Paul, dekaiuste in verse 4 and dekaiusunes in verse 5. You guys following along with me? All right, great. Let's go now and look at the commentary. And as I mentioned, we've got a lot of reading to do tonight, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time stopping and explaining. I'll just actually um, read, and then I think it should be self-explanatory. All right, how's that? All right, we're actually going to look at verse 4 tonight. That's the only one we're going to hit. And I think I'm going to hit all of verse 4 if I can. And that way, after the two-week break, we'll be ready to start with verse 5 in two weeks. In order to understand what we're going to be looking at tonight, we're going to be talking about um, Martin Luther, and um, we're going to be talking about uh, his commentary. I'm going to be pulling a quote from his commentary tonight for verse 4. And this is kind of fitting, seeing as how uh, just recently, I think it's October 31st every year, which is the same day as Halloween, right, is actually what do we call Reformation Day. Reformation Day, Martin Luther and the Reformation, which is a really, really great event that we should celebrate. I mean, we well, at least we should recognize. I'm not saying you have to do something on October 31st, but um, I think it was it was a significant event in the in the turning point of Christianity, and um, uh, kind of almost kind of in in what do we say coincidence with that? We're we're talking about we're reading from Martin Luther's uh, commentary tonight in my Galatian study. Uh, what I want to do real quick for for us is I want to read something from my commentary that I actually wrote that we would have we 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 should have covered two years ago, but we didn't because at the time that we were studying this section in my commentary two years ago, then I hadn't rewritten this part that I'm going to read for you right now. So it never actually got written. It never got really spoken into audio like it's going to be uh, like it's going to happen tonight. 
And this is basically to help us understand what I think is a background to understanding Paul. Basically, it is what I describe as a hermeneutic principle, meaning a, a way in which you uh, interpret a passage and approach a passage, a kind of a mindset, uh, a, an agenda that you might a- approach any given passage, which, oops, sorry about that. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. All right, let's make sure the microphone's not doing anything funny. Everything looks good. All right. Okay, so in my commentary, uh, way back two years ago on page one at the preface section, I made these remarks about Luther and Reformation views on Paul. And most of you who follow my commentary know that I take issues with what's known as the Lutheran Paul or the Reformation view of Paul. And so for those of you who are scratching your heads, confused, saying, what in the world are you talking about, Ariel? What is Reformation Paul? What's Lutheran Paul? I have to read this part first real quick before I read uh, Galatians 5 verse 4. This is from my preface section to my commentary, which is way up in page 1. Again, we would have tackled this this section two years ago, but I rewrote this this first section. So uh, some of you, for some of you, this might be brand new. You're hearing it for the first time. If you're like me, sometimes you want to know an author's main point within a few minutes of delving into one of his studies. This way, you can decide if you want to invest the time it will take to read the next few hundred pages he wrote in support of his main thesis. That being the case, uh, I'll go ahead and tip my cards to you, my readers, right from the beginning. I'm reading from my commentary right on page one. So for those of you who are in live class, you should be able to see my, my uh, screen there. I go on to say, from my limited experience of studying Paul with many well-meaning folks, both Jewish and Gentile, laymen and seminarians, I have found that those who study Paul fall into essentially two often opposing camps when it comes to interpreting and practically applying his letter to the Galatians. One, we have Lutheran slash Reformation Paul, and two, New Perspective on Paul, or NPP. So those are the two basically two essential categories that I have found that people fall into. They might may not label them that way. And I'm not saying that you have to be 100% in one camp versus 100% in the other. Sometimes we have kind of a combination of the two. But even the combination of the two recognizes that there are essentially, at least from my perspective, recognize that there's only two categories. In other words, there isn't really a third category that is completely separate from some form of combination of the two or something like that. I go on to say, the first school of thought, which is Lutheran Paul, which is the one we're going to be talking about tonight, represents essentially the traditional reading of Paul, the popular reading of Paul, the prevailing perspective of Paul within standard Christianity. This is the view that I'm going to describe here in a moment. This is the view that you're going to find if you pick up just about any Bible commentary to Paul in your average Christian bookstore, or if you go online, or if you Google um commentary to Paul, or you Google a commentary to Galatians or Romans or something like that. Um, the, the view that I'm going to describe here is basically what 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 most pastors and theologians and, and, and seminarians, and thus, uh, by default, most average laymen, are going to be, hold to is this Lutheran view, version of Paul or Reformation view of Paul. Basically, Lutheran Paul and Reformation Paul are so similar that I, I use the terms interchangeably. So, Here's what this looks like. I go on to say, this hermeneutic, 
right? This viewpoint, this this logical perspective of the scriptures. That's kind of what the term hermeneutic means. It's kind of a, a viewpoint, a, a bias, a scriptural bias, if you want to use it that way. This hermeneutic, for the most part, espouses to a belief that, listen up, Paul seems to depict Judaism, this is the first century Judaisms, as cold and calculatingly legalistic a system of works righteousness wherein salvation is earned by the merit of good works. To quote James D.G. Dunn, quote, and listen to this quote for a moment, this is Dunn who's a Christian commentary, commentator and yet has broken from the traditional uh, Reformation Paul to, to join what we basically are calling the new perspective on Paul. Here's Dunn. He's a new perspectivist, essentially. Quote, and he's describing his his previous understanding of Reformation Paul. So listen up. Quote, Since Paul's teaching on justification by faith seems to speak so directly to Luther's subjective wrestlings, it was a natural corollary to see Paul's opponents in terms of the unreformed Catholicism which opposed Luther with first-century Judaism read through the grid of the early 16th-century Catholic system of merit. Dunn goes on to say, to a remarkable and indeed alarming degree, throughout this, this century, speaking of today's commentaries, throughout this century, the standard depiction of the Judaism which Paul rejected has been the reflex of Lutheran hermeneutic, end quote. And that's lifted from uh, Dunn's work, The New Perspective on Paul, uh, that you can find, actually you can find that online if you just Google it. All right, I go on to say in my commentary, this view of Paul often interprets Paul as preaching a, quote, law-free, end quote, gospel, where believers in Yeshua, Jesus, are set free from the, quote, bondages, end quote, of the law of Moses and are instead obligated by the law of Christ. While I actually agree with most of the central foundational truths of Christianity— these are my own words. And even though I, too, am not ashamed to call myself a Christian, quote-unquote, for the most part, as a Messianic Jewish man who believes that the promises of the New Covenant teaches that the law of God, that is the Torah, is written on my heart and that by His Spirit I am subsequently empowered and covenant-bound to keep it, right? Even though that's my position. I go on to say, I'm afraid that I simply cannot espouse to the prevailing traditional Christian views that teach that much of the Torah, that is the ceremonial civil, is not for Gentile believers in Christ. And for that reason, I know a number of you who follow my commentaries as well as attend Messianic congregations have a hard time even sitting under uh, traditional Christian sermons or listening to traditional tr Christian uh, messages or reading traditional Christian commentaries because they come across as so anti-Torah, anti-Jewish, and, you know, they're teaching that the law is done away with. And it's just, I, I, I have a good friend of mine who's probably listening right now. Um, I won't say his name, but he's often remarked to me that, wow, it's, he has a hard time even just listening to traditional pastors uh, because of their anti-Torah or their law-free gospel approach. And, and I can understand where he's coming from. I go on to say my commentary in this, in this part real quick. In fact, with the exception of the rejection of the ongoing relevance of the so-called ceremonial and civil parts of the law, I go on to say, I firmly believe that Luther and Calvin, that is Lutheran Paul and Reformation Paul perspectives, I actually believe that they did their jobs well. So listen up for a moment for those of you who follow me from a messianic perspective and you're thinking, gosh, Ariel, why do you even follow Lutheran Paul and, and Reformation Paul? 
if they're so anti-Torah, anti-Jewish. Listen up for a moment. I need to give credit where credit's due. I think they actually did their jobs well, and I commend and respect them for that. In contrast to what many NPP advocates often assume, I sincerely believe that they, that is Luther and Calvin, they demonstrated their understandings of Paul quite accurately, yet felt the need to contextualize his message for their respective modern audiences. In other words, I go on to say, Luther and Calvin after him did what any good preacher should do with the timeless word of God. And what was that? They interpret it and apply it to the current situation that they're faced with. That's what pastors do with the word of God. In this regard, to the degree, to the degree that Gentile Christians are assured of their genuine covenant standing as securely rooted in the finished work of Messiah as Gentiles, Lutheran Paul and Reformation Paul are necessary, I think, and accurate applications of Paul's words. That being said, however, and here's where I take issue, Lutheran Paul and Reformation Paul are not the same thing as first century Paul. You understand where I'm going with that? And that is why I believe we need, to some degree, all three views on Paul. We've got Lutheran Paul, Reformation Paul, and then we've got what we might call first century Paul. For indeed, with the unfortunate exception of today's modern Messianic Jewish movement and its ugly tendencies to relegate Gentile Christians as second-class citizens in their congregations, right? There's some kind of um, uh, slamming Messianic congregations today who push Gentiles off to the side. Shame on you for doing that. With the exception of them, right, um, most historic and modern Gentile Christians that you might find today if you were to approach your average garden variety Christian on the, on the street today, most of them are not entertaining notions of what you describe as taking on legal Jewish status for the ostensible sake of becoming genuine covenant members in Israel. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, most Jewish, most Gentiles that I meet aren't trying to become Jewish in order to become saved, is the point I'm trying to make. They're not trying to get into Israel, most Gentile Christians, most Gentiles to, at all. Most Gentiles, whether they're Christian or not, are not trying to get into Israel. They're not trying to, to, to prosel, they're not trying to convert to become Jewish or anything like that. Most of them aren't. They're not trying to keep Torah. They're not really kind of preoccupied with this idea of keeping Torah for the sake of being saved or became, being counted as righteous or anything like that. None of that really is taking place today. This is really a first century Israel issue. So, I say in my commentary, for the, for the mainstream Christian church in general, this what I'm describing as socio-religious power struggle seems to have been a uniquely first-century Jewish-Gentile dilemma. <clears throat> all right, so I said all of that to introduce us to tonight's teaching, which I'm going to jump now over to uh, Galatians 5.4 and read here from my commentary. I want those of you who are following along in my commentary to understand that there is a Lutheran view of Paul, a Lutheran-slash-Reformation view, and then there's what I call a, a, a first-century uh, view of Paul, a more accurate first century view, meaning accurate from an historical perspective, uh, but from a um, from an application perspective, sometimes pastors just aren't going to talk about uh, Gentiles converting to Judaism. Instead, what what are you going to hear pastors talking about mostly? Listen to my commentary tonight, and this is what you're mostly going to hear. Uh, your average Christian pastor, or what you might read in your average Christian commentary, this is essentially what you're going to hear them. Um, uh, discuss when they turn to passages like the one we're going to look at tonight. So, without further ado, top of page 158, Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Here's my commentary. 
First, we quote the verse, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Again, that's ESV. Now, listen to my comments. <clears throat> Merit theology would have the phrase, quote, justified by the law, end quote, as teaching that anyone wishing to keep the Torah of Moshe perfectly for the purpose of gaining salvation has alienated themselves from Christ. They have fallen from grace. I say in my commentary, why the alienation and, and the fallen state? Because, according to these same theologians, right, prevailing Christian uh, Reformation and Lutheran views of Paul, according to these theologians, to attempt to keep the Torah for salvific purposes is tantamount to works slash legalism. And of course, everyone knows that we're not saved by works, viz, by legalistically following Torah, but by calling, this is how we're saved, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luther's famous words, I say in my commentary on this passage, are telling. Allow me to quote them at length. Now, so that's why I gave that lengthy introduction to Luther <clears throat> in light of uh, two reasons. One, in light of the fact that we just came out of uh, Reformation Day a few weeks ago, and in light of the fact that um, most Christians today hold Luther in high regard, and yet many Messianics have found that it's kind of hard to stomach Luther when you go back and read his commentary and realize that he was working from a position that was uh, kind of um, challenging or combating uh, Torah observance for Christians and or any any um, resemblance of Judaism for a Christian. So let's read Luther's words, and I'm not going to stop too much and elaborate on them. They're kind of self-explanatory. Here's Luther, quote, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, you, ye are fallen from grace. So Luther's going to give his, his spin on what this verse means. Here we go, quote, Paul in this verse discloses that he is not speaking so much of circumcision as the trust which men repose in the outward act. We can hear him say, quote, I do not condemn the law in itself. What I condemn is that men seek to be justified by the law as if Christ were still to come or as if he alone were able to justify sinners. It is this that I, condone, that I condemn because it makes Christ of no effect. It makes you void of Christ so that Christ is not in you, nor can you be partakers of the knowledge, the spirit, the fellowship, the liberty, the life, or the achievements of Christ. These are still Luther's words speaking on Paul's verse here. You are completely separated from him, so much so that he has nothing to do with you anymore, or for that matter, you with him, end quote. So that's Luther speaking as if he's Paul. This is still Luther speaking, though, quote. This is Luther's commentary, quote. Can anything worse be said against the law? If you think Christ and the law can dwell together in your heart, you may be sure that Christ dwells not in your heart. For, if Christ is in your heart, he neither condemns you, nor does he ever bid you to trust in your own good works. If you know Christ at all, you know that good works do not serve unto righteousness, nor evil works unto condemnation. I do not want to withhold, withhold from good works, uh, Luther goes on to say, I do not want to withhold from good works their due praise, nor do I wish to encourage evil works. But when it comes to justification, Luther says, I say we must concentrate upon Christ alone, or else we make him non-effective. You must choose between Christ 
and the righteousness of the law. If you choose Christ, you are righteous before God. If you stick to the law, Christ is of no use to you. All right, Luther goes on to say, Ye are fallen from grace. That means you are no longer in the kingdom or condition of grace. When a person on board ship falls into the sea and is drowned, it makes no difference from which end or side of the ship he falls into the water. Those who fall from grace perish no matter how they go about it. Those who seek to be justified by the law are fallen from grace and are in grave danger of eternal death. If this holds true in the case of those who seek to be justified by the moral law, what will become of those, I should like to know, who endeavor to be justified by their own regulations and vows? We're near the top of page 159 in my commentary, and we're still reading Luther's comments on Galatians 5, verse 4. He goes on to say, They will fall to the very bottom of hell. Oh no, they say, we will fly straight into heaven. If you live according to the rules of St. Francis, St. Dominic, St. Benedict, you will obtain the peace and mercy of God. If you perform the vows of chastity, obedience, etc., you will be rewarded with everlasting life. End quote. That's uh, Luther quoting some of the, his opponents of his day. Some of, you can hear the, uh, the, 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 the sentiments of the, uh, some of the Catholic theologians of his day. But Luther goes on to challenge them. He says, let these playful things of the devil go to the place where they came from and listen to what Paul has to say in this verse in accordance with Christ's own teaching. Quote, he that believeth in the Son of God hath everlasting life, but he that believeth not in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God shall abide in him. End quote. That's Luther quoting Yeshua. And then finally, this last paragraph from Luther reads, quote, The words, ye are fallen from grace, must not be taken lightly. They are important. To fall from grace means to lose the atonement, the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness, liberty, and life which Jesus has merited for us by his death and resurrection. To lose the grace of God means to, go, uh, means to gain the wrath and judgment of God, death the bondage of the devil, and everlasting condemnation. End quote to Luther's commentary. If you look at footnote number 150 in my commentary, you'll see that I pulled this right off the uh, blueletterbible.org website. They have the, a complete uh, reprint of uh, Luther's commentary there. That's to his Galatians chapter 5. Okay, so I think all of you are, are following along with me in my commentary now. Those of you who have been listening and those of you who are with me in the live class have been following along with me for any amount of time. You understand that that I often contrast the traditional Lutheran slash Reformation view of Paul, which is the prevailing popular standard Christian view of Paul, with, I contrast that with, what today is being recognized as a, a kind of a new view on Paul or a new perspective on Paul, or a more first-century, historically social-religious social view of Paul. And uh, I make this contrast for a few very important reasons. So listen up. Let's see if I can put this succinctly. Reading from my own commentary, these are my words now, not Luther. As accurate as Luther's theology is in explaining works-slash-legalism versus grace... Unfortunately, it is not, in my opinion, it is not what the verse is speaking of historically. 
In other words, I don't think Paul was combating a merit theology uh, described uh, or and articulated the way that most Christians would articulate it today, kind of merit theology, works righteousness, doing the law in order to be saved, things like that. I don't think that's what Paul had to combat. All right. I say in my commentary, and we must remember this hermeneutic principle that, that that's not what Paul is speaking of. We must remember this principle if we are ever to interpret Scripture accurately. All right? Listen to the principle that I think we need to remember. Here's, I think, the one of the most important hermeneutic principles that you can remember when you're studying the Scriptures. What is it? It's really easy. Context is king. Context is king. And any given passage must be interpreted, I say, in light of what it meant to the original audience before making practical application for us today. I hear this all the time. I go to uh, a Bible study. This is both Messianic and Christian. And I'm not saying that I'm the one who has the final word or I'm the one who's know-all, be-all, see-all, do-all. I'm not trying to set myself up as this person who is the all-wise, all-knowing Bible teacher. That's not what I'm trying to say. But but um, I think if you'll follow along with me in, in what I'm describing, you'll, you'll agree with me. It's unfortunate that too often when we go to Bible study that we'll read through a passage, and this happens in public Bible studies as well as our own private ones, we'll read through a passage and we'll start praying to God and we'll say, Lord, what does this mean to me? Holy Spirit, can you show me what this means to me? What does this passage that I'm reading, what does it mean to me and how can I apply it to my life? And as well-meaning as that sounds, to pray that prayer, Lord, show me what this passage means to me. Please explain it to me, Holy Spirit. Help me to understand how I can apply this passage to my life. As well-meaning as that sounds, it's actually one step removed from where we should start. I think we should actually start by praying something similar to this. Lord, what did this passage mean to the person who wrote it and the people that received the letter? What did it mean to them first? Lord, what does this passage mean to the recipients of the letter? First, Lord, Holy Spirit, help me to understand the context that this passage was written in. What did it mean to them? Because I I wasn't around 2,000 years ago or 3,500 years ago when the passage was written. So how can I understand what it meant to them first? First. And then after I understand that or get some semblance of what that means, Lord, then can you show me how to practically apply the same passage to my own situation today, whatever uh, whatever situation I find myself in now. Lord, how can I make this this 3,500-year-old or 1,500-year-old or 2,000-year-old uh, scripture, how can I make it relevant for me today in 21st century Christianity or wherever I find myself? You guys understand what I mean? So I think that's what we should be doing. At least that's that's my perspective on it. If you If you have a serious disagreement with me, go ahead and write to me. Let me know. All right, so I say in my commentary, I think if we're ever to interpret Scripture accurately, uh, we have to know, remember that context is king and that passages must be interpreted in light of what it meant to the original audience before making pra- practical application for us today. I go on to say, using this principle, we cannot really, if we use this principle, we cannot really have Shaul warning his readers against misusing the Torah observances of their day for the purpose of justification, viz., salvation, right? If we turn that word justification into salvation, they weren't really misusing Torah observance for salvation or membership into Israel. 
Rather, the term law here in this passage that we're reading must be understood to indicate legal Jewish status or some other term similar to proselyte conversion for Gentiles. So, I go on to say that Paul is not really warning them about a misuse of Torah. Rather, Paul is warning them about a misuse in identity and social status. So if you go back and look at uh, Galatians 5.4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified, that is, saved by the law. What does he mean by the law? I think he means by the principle in Judaism, a halacha, that is a, 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 a driven by our ethnicity or by our identity as Jewish Israel. So by a law that is regulated by our nationalism. In other words, you would be justified by uh, Jewish ethnicity, or you would be justified by membership in Israel, or however you want to fill in the blank there. So, um, basically, <clears throat> I go on to say, in my commentary, but how could Paul say that they have been, quote, alienated from Christ, right? How does alienated from Christ, quote-unquote, fit with the theology of the idea that law was probably referring to Jewish ethnicity and that the Gentile Galatians were seeking to misuse this identity in order to be counted as righteous. How is it that 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 Jewish ethnicity and alienation from Christ fit together? Let's, let's see what that has to do. Uh, let's see how that fits together. I say in my commentary, um, how could Paul say that they've been alienated from Christ and that they have fallen from grace? Right, fallen from grace. Remember what Luther said earlier above. He said that fallen from grace is essentially that they've lost their 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 position in Christ. That they've they were saved, but now they've lost it. They jumped over the edge of the ship. You, you, you remember his description. I say in my commentary, does Paul now imagine that his Gentile? I'm sorry, that his genuine Gentile Christian readers have somehow lost their salvation? Is that what Paul's saying? That they when he says fallen from grace, does he mean that they lost their salvation? Is that what alienation from Christ and falling from grace? means. Now, here's what I think. I think it hardly possible that Paul would speak of conversion to Judaism for a true Gentile believer as something that would undo a person's position of salvation in Christ. In other words, I don't think that a genuine Christian who converts and becomes a Jew suddenly becomes unsaved because of his taking on Jewish identity, like in the first century. You understand my illusion there? My, my illustration? I say in my commentary, rather, within the mystery of God's spiritual attraction on and calling of a person or a community, I think that there seems to exist what I describe as circles of graduated mercy and grace, or revelation, if you will, so that the closer you get to surrendering your life completely into the loving arms of Yeshua HaMashiach, that is today, salvation, so the closer you get to that moment, the more light and revelation God shows you until the moment of salvation is finally, quote-unquote, birthed within you. That is to say, kind of, you, you know, you, you, you're born, born again, birthed within you, and you call upon the name of the Lord for personal deliverance. In other words, I think there's a, a, a process, a kind of a, um, a, um, a, a building up of, of the moment of salvation that takes place for, for many people. In other words, salvation, I believe, is somewhat instantaneous the moment you actually call upon the Lord. But for many people, they don't know exactly when they get saved. Some people describe you know going to church for many years and wrestling with the decision 
and praying and and wrestling and praying and 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 talking to their friends and parents and pastor and reading the Bible and then finally something takes place something like that it's not true for everyone like that but many people describe it that way so listen to my commentary I go on to say that to join oneself to a believing community so imagine just just follow with me for a moment say you're an unbeliever you join yourself to a believing community right a church or a family or church group or or bible study or something like that you join yourself to a believing community and then intellectually confess faith in yeshua and then shrink back reject jesus and pursue another intellectual interest i think that is indeed alienation from christ right you alienate yourself from christ and in that respect i i think you fall from grace you don't lose your salvation but you fall from the position of of being within the 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 relative of uh, proximity of a both a believing community and the grace of God and the moment of salvation you're within that that room that perspective you're within that proximity that closeness to everything that's going on so that you could um kind of um what do we say uh uh um you could uh, make a decision right uh, based on facts based on information uh, you could be you could make an informed decision. That's the term I was looking for. But what you do, you you sometimes you may actually even intellectually confess faith in Yeshua with your head. You say Jesus makes sense, the church makes sense, the Bible makes sense, God makes sense. So so you confess in your head, but then something happens. You shrink back intellectually again, right? In other words, for some reason, some somebody convinces you that Jesus doesn't make sense. So you shrink back, you reject Jesus intellectually once again, and you pursue another intellectual interest. Maybe you go after another religion or you just drop Christianity altogether. And I think that that's what Paul's describing as alienating yourself from Christ or falling from grace. <clears throat> I go into saying my commentary, and we're almost done here, by the way. It's not as if you had genuine salvation and then lost it. I don't think that's what's going on, and I don't think don't think that's what Paul's describing when he uses the phrase fallen from grace. It is that by leaving Christ so cavalierly, I go on to say in, in my commentary near the bottom of page 159, that you prove that you were never truly, genuinely saved to begin with. I think that's what happens when you fall from grace truly a dangerous game to play with uh, when we're talking about playing with God, considering the sober, sober warnings that we read about in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, which is really a very familiar passage when we're discussing a once saved, always saved, or something like that. Can, you, can, a, can a genuine Christian lose his salvation? And when we have this discussion, I think it's helpful to keep this perspective in view that there's often three types of people. There's people who are genuinely saved, that's one, People who are genuinely unsaved, that's two. And then there's these people in the middle that are kind of in decision mode. They're intellectually saved, so which means they're not really saved. They really belong to, to they really belong to the unsaved camp, but they're a different type of unsaved person because intellectually they may think they're saved, or they may have been convinced that they're saved because they, they're part of a group of other saved people, or they're they are the offspring of saved adults, that is to say they're children who have saved parents. Or they are members of a of a of a church family, and in in that membership, let's say a whole family comes to join a, a church. Mother and father, daughter and sister, daughter and son join a church, and mom and dad might really be saved, but but 
son and daughter might actually not be saved, but because they joined as a family, the son and daughter might actually think that they're saved because their 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 membership is linked to their family, and and you know after all, you know God wouldn't save mom and dad but leave us out, right? Something like that. So with that in mind, let's look at Hebrews six verses four through eight. I'll just quote it here out of the ESV. Quote. Uh, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. And I think all of those descriptions of a person are possible for people who can be intellectually saved and yet not genuinely saved. Ask me sometime and we can do a commentary on that. Um, so all of these types of people can actually be not really saved, even though, I mean, if you look at the language, it's, it's similar to people who are saved in it. And why not? Because it's describing saved communities where we have a community of people who are both saved, uh, 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 people, part, parts of the people are saved and parts of them aren't. So obviously the descriptions are going to apply to the whole community. Right, some of them fall away. What do you mean they fall away? Well, they fall away intellectually. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God in their own harm, to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. Why would they do that? Because they've never really truly died. For land that—that uh, that is to say, died spiritually. For land that has drunk the rain. Right. Notice the land drinks in the rain. That is to say, uh, unsaved people also can take in the rain, the rain of the Holy Spirit, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake, whose sake it is cultivated, right? So ground is, is good in one place and bad in the other, but the rain falls on both parts of the ground so that uh, you can have crops that spring up in the good part, but that don't spring up in the parts that are, that are hardened. You understand what I mean? The rain falls equally on both parts. Who is the rain in this analogy? The rain is the Holy Spirit. And who is the ground in this analogy? Well, the, the good ground is the believers, which therefore they're going to produce a crop. But the the unbelievers, they're not going to produce a crop. And why wouldn't they produce a crop? Because they're unbelievers. And therefore, even though the Holy Spirit falls on the unbeliever, just like the rain falls on the ground in this analogy in Hebrews, the reason there's no crop that's produced is because they are unbelievers. So that's why the writer to the book of Hebrews can say, land that has drunk the rain, the land is like this community that has both saved and unsaved people in it. So you can just think of like a church family. The land that has drunk the rain, that it often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. So the, the, the true believers receive a blessing because the rain of the Holy Spirit that falls on them will produce a crop because that's the way God designed it to work. But, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, but if it bears thorns and thistles, what's the it? The it is the very same land, but it must be the unbelievers of the land that bear thorns and thistles it is worthless, right? Why would God call believers worthless? It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. End quote. That's Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. So I go on to say in my commentary, I think that Paul is actually um, talking about these the, those who are in decision mode, meaning um, they have made an intellectual decision to join a group of Christians, just like we have people who go to church today who say, you know, I'm going to give this Christianity thing a try. I'll go to church for a while and see if it's, see if it's, see if it's fits, see if it's something that works for me, see if there's any benefit in it, see if there, if there's anything in it for me. 
see what I can get out of it. You know, we all meet people like this. They attend church for a few months. Uh, they meet a bunch of people. And, you know, they even pray with other people. They pray out loud. They may dance and shout with the with the praise and worship. Uh, they may stand up and actually even give a testimony. But at, when hardship shows up, um, when the trials come to their life, they actually shrink back because, like we read in the book of John, they left, they went out from us because they were never part of us. So I go on to say my commentary in closing. Um, the Torah teaches that if we continue on in the grace that God has shown us, even as unbelievers, that he himself will grant grace upon grace to help us understand the work the Messiah has done on our behalf. After all, we read in James or Jacob 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, end quote. So, listen to that verse, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. I believe, I say in my commentary in closing, I believe this verse works just as well for the unbeliever as it does for the believer, draw near to God. As an unbeliever, you can draw near to God. And as a believer, you can draw near to God. You understand what I mean? That's where God's grace is so 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 wide and so broad. We can't really limit God's grace just to believers. It is true there is a unique and special kind of grace that is reserved just for believers because it's a covenantal grace. It's a relationship that we're talking about. And once you have become saved, there's a unique relationship that you uh, enjoy with God and with the Spirit and with Yeshua that you cannot have unless you are saved. But we must ad we must admit as believers that God's grace extends to unbelievers. Otherwise, how do we how do we even how are we even drawn into the relationship to begin with? It's God's mercy and grace that draws us and starts to bring us into that proximity, into that place, into that decision mode, into that room where we can start to become informed of the salvation that God has to offer. And then sometimes it takes people a few months to come to a decision. Some people come to it rather quickly. Some people, it takes a course of years to where they finally make a decision for Christ. And then once they do make the decision, I believe that the change is instantaneous. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people are saved over the course of a of a week or a month or years. I'm not. I, I don't think that the Bible describes salvation as a as something that that takes years to 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 accomplish. But what I do believe that the Bible uh, portrays is that people can be in decision making mode, uh, where they're trying to decide whether God is real, whether Jesus is the Messiah. They can be in that kind of decision making process for weeks and months and years until finally. They surrender. You guys following me? Great. All right. So I say in my final comment, my final paragraph of my commentary, speaking of the verse, the commentary, uh, uh, James 4, 8, where we say, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I believe that this verse actually works just as well for the unbeliever as it does for the believer. For example, would you not agree that those unbelievers who nevertheless attend church on a regular basis are actually, quote, closer to accepting Yeshua, end quote, than possibly those unbelievers who don't attend church and get a chance to hear the gospel at all. Now, of course, we're talking from human perspective, so don't twist my words. God himself can save anyone, 
anywhere, at any time, no matter what circumstances that person finds themselves in, no matter how much gospel that person hears, no matter how many church services that person attends, whether or not that person is in the middle of the jungles of Africa without a single Christian around, or that person is right in the middle of Christian America where there's a church on every corner. It doesn't matter. God's Holy Spirit can reach a sinner no matter where they're at, whether they're on planet Earth or whether they're on the moon. Wouldn't you agree? But from man's perspective, from our limited human perspective, we tend to think that people who are inside of Christian influences such as church are actually closer to accepting Yeshua because they are in a place where they can, as the Bible describes, hear the preaching of the good news. So, with that limited understanding, I want to say my commentary. In my limited understanding of God's grace that I'm describing here, God positively utilizes the social settings that we associate with for his advantage and purposes in his efforts to reveal the Son to us. God uses our Christian upbringing. He uses our Christian families. He uses the Christian uh, television and radio and books that, that are all around us to bring us to that decision of making a, 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 making a decision for Christ. So, children born of Christian parents in a Christian nation surrounded by Christian friends would actually naturally exist in a more graduated state of, quote, grace, unquote, than someone, for instance, without all of those advantages, right? Wouldn't you agree? I think most of you listening to my commentary would agree. Again, I've already made the disclaimer, God can save anyone, anywhere. It doesn't matter if you're in a Christian country or in a Muslim country or a godless country like, uh, I don't know, communist China or something, just to name a country off the top of my head that maybe doesn't have Christianity as its state religion like, like America does. So, um, I think that being raised in a Christian home with Christian parents and being taken to church every week by your parents, those, I think, can be called advantages. And that's what I think is uh, within the scope of grace. So I go on to conclude. God rescued the people of Israel out of the clutches of the Egyptians, we read about that in the Torah, so that he could bring them to the foot of Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, and then give them his Torah, and then bring them into the land of promise, right? He took them out of Egypt. He saved them right where they were, right in the clutches of pagan Egypt. He took them out of that, but he didn't just leave them there, right? What happened next? Living in the land of promise, like he brought them into, with the very words of the living God of the universe in your community, is definitely a position of grace, Right, we would have to agree. Even if we recognize that not even if we recognize that every single Israelite did not eventually go on to foster a personal relationship with her God. And we know that's true. All of those people who were taken out of Egypt and brought to the foot of Sinai and given the words of Torah collectively as a group, God called them all Israel. They all heard the words. They all saw the cloud, they all saw the lightning and the thunders and heard the voices and the rumblings and all of that. But, as we read about later on in, in parts of the Torah, and indeed, indeed, even on into the book of Hebrews itself, not all of them went on to believe in that God, which is a sad commentary, right? Even after all of that, the miraculous signs and wonders, and the deliverance through the Red Sea, and, and the and, and front row seat of watching the plagues, you know, in Exodus, and things like that, after all of that, many of them rejected God 
wanted to go back to Egypt. And so what did God do? He made, he made them march round and round the desert for 40 years until their bones dropped into the sand. So the point I'm trying to make is it doesn't matter so much uh, uh, sometimes you're surrounding that if, unless you make that personal decision for God, then you're not on the boat of salvation, if I could use that term. So, but, but we would have to agree that, that God brings people into a, a, a kind of a, a space of grace, a proximity of grace to himself where they can, they're given enough revelation as a community, as a people, as a family, so that they can make an informed decision. And I go on to finally say, from God's perspective, their position, these people that are brought into that that gracious um, um, proximity, their position of grace as the chosen people, such as Israel was, it it didn't change, right? From God's perspective, it, 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 it did not change. Only when Israel continued to play the harlot by engaging in idolatry did they fall from grace, so to say, and suffer exile from the land. So, we could say that the place of grace in closing for Israel is my example here. The place of grace was actually being in the land with access to the priests, access to the Torah, access to the sacrifices, access to the community of the called out ones. To be in the land as an Israelite, whether you're saved or unsaved, but to be in the land is a position of grace. But, when ancient Israel time and time again played the harlot, God finally said, you know what? I'm going to kick you out of the land. What does it mean? In one sense, that means you're going to fall from a place of grace if you have not made a decision yet. Unfortunately, for, even for those who were genuinely saved, some of those people also got pulled into exile with the whole lot of them. But the point is, the place of grace was lost by Israel because they fell from a, a proximity to the sacrifices. They fell from a privilege of being able to bring their offerings to God and to worship before God and to commune with the priests and to have discussions with the prophets of God. Once they were kicked out of the land and removed and, and uprooted and taken to either Babylon or to Assyria, then they were in a position of, of punishment, a, t- a position of time out, a position where they couldn't receive the, the words of God freely. And and I think that's what it means to fall from grace. So as we draw this to a close, when we go back and look at Paul, where Paul says in verse 4 of Galatians chapter 5, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. He's trying to really reach out to these people who, are, who haven't yet made a decision that Jesus is the Christ. And if these people who are in decision mode are going along with the rest of the community, and they're just going to say, you know what, everyone else is doing it, Everyone else is converting to Judaism because that seems to be the right thing to do. I, and because that seems to be the only way to be counted as justified, right? Dikaiao. That seems to be the only way to be counted as righteous in Israel. That seems to be the only way that I can be saved, in other words. Well, then I'll just go ahead and convert as well and place my trust in my ethnicity so that once I become a Jew, then God will recognize me as righteous and bring me into a relationship with him. And then I can walk out the Torah and have a place in the Olam Haba. That is the position that Paul is going to uh, warn these Galatian Gentiles away from. Look, if you go down the path of circumcision and ethnicity for your salvation and being counted as righteous, if you're not saved, this is a dangerous position to turn your back on on confessing Christ. This is a dangerous position until you have come to the point where you're sealed by the Holy Spirit, a point where 
I'm filling in for Paul's words, a point where you can't really lose your salvation. This is a dangerous game to play where you're gambling with God, um, where you're saying, mm, I, you know, what's what's the harm in becoming circumcised and becoming a Jew and following after Torah for the purpose of becoming righteous? What's the big deal, right? You know, uh, the Jews are righteous, so, so and they're Jewish. So, uh, you know, why not me? I, I guess I can be righteous too. That's the dangerous place that Paul wants to warn them away from. So, I don't think Paul's warning them about losing their salvation. He's warning those who have not yet even become saved that if they play this game of ethnicity, roll the dice and hope that ethnicity is the is is the um the winning role, so to say, then they're going to put themselves in a position where the spirit of God is withdrawn from them and they are not going to be able to find their way back to that grace position unless God himself extends that grace to them. So the point I'm really also trying to emphasize is that God is the one who's in control of grace, people. Until you make a decision for God, until you make a decision for Jesus, until you say yes to Yeshua, God is the one who's in control of grace. He's the one that extends grace to you. And guess what? If you play with sin, if you play with something other than genuine faith in God, if you play with other religions, if you play with with other uh, pathways to God, he can withdraw grace. God can withhold it so that you can't make a decision. God is in control of that, not you. So don't think that, no, at any time I can just choose Christ, but I'm not ready to choose Christ just yet. I'm not ready to say yes to Jesus just yet. I think I'll play around with sin. I think I'll play around with other religions. I think I'll go shopping at these other churches for a while and see what they have to offer and see if there's anything better. And then when, if it doesn't look right for me, then I'll go back to Jesus and I'll choose him and then I'll pick salvation and then I'll be saved. And everything will be hunky-dory. Not so. Not so. That's not how it works. God is in control of that. So he extends grace. You better you better act on that while God's offer is being extended, while his your eyes are being opened, and while that moment of 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 moving of the spirit is among uh, the community that you're in. You better go you know go down the aisle and make a decision. Okay. All right. I think I've said enough, and we've covered all of uh, verse four. We're now poised to turn to uh, Galatians 5, 5 and 6. We'll pick those up in two weeks. But for now, let's close in prayer, okay? Abba, I bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to study with the students. I pray that the words that I've said will be impacting to uh, those who are listening. I pray that you'll take the words and and cause them to move the hearts of people who are listening. And I pray this, Lord, and base this on the fact that uh they are your words, the words of life, the words of the Spirit, the words of Torah. Not my words, not my thoughts, but the words that I have uh, uh, relayed that are your words. So I pray that um, um, that your Spirit and your words would uh, receive uh, uh, the glory that is due them and that your words would not return to you void. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will continue to prick the hearts of those who are listening who have not yet made a decision for Yeshua. Let them not wait any longer. Today is the day of salvation. Today, as the book of uh, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, today if you hear his voice, hearken to his voice. Listen to his voice. Today is the day. Don't harden your hearts as in the day of provocation we read in the book of Hebrews. Today is the day of salvation we read, I think, around Hebrews chapter 4 or somewhere. Lord, let them make that decision today. Holy Spirit, bring them into that relationship with Yeshua the Son. Thank you, Father, uh, for those who've listened and those who are studying along with me. I pray that you'll continue to raise them up and give them strength as they uh, share the good news with those around them. Continue to heal us, Lord. I pray and thank you for those who are able to join my study from time to time. I thank you and ask you to continue to heal us and to strengthen us as a community and bring us into a right relationship with you. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen.
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.